October 2011. 56-year-old Russell Schmecker lies uncomfortably in the hospital wing of the Menard Correctional Center, Illinois. His shaved head drips with sweat, and his skinny hands wiggle feebly against their handcuffs. With a plastic tube stretching down his nose into his stomach, he's the picture of decay and pain. But Russell knows it will be over soon. The cancer from his colon has spread throughout his entire body and is eating into his last few days on Earth. A police officer stands next to him, alert as though expecting this weakened criminal to attack any moment. The impossibility of the thought makes Russell laugh. His brain is filled with hatred for the officer. He represents all that Russell despises. Rule, order, law. His hatred for authority is perhaps why, as he lies chained to his bed, he feels pride. Although he's serving a 300-year prison sentence for a brutal double murder, he's managed to escape justice for an additional two crimes. Crimes of mysterious disappearances that have baffled detectives and worried families for decades. The only living person who has the answer to these cold cases is Russell. But although keeping this information secret gives him a sense of power, Russell can't resist the opportunity to humiliate the police one last time. I did it, he croaks, staring at the officer with no emotion in his dark eyes as a taunting smile plays on his lips. I murdered Ruth Martin and Michael Mansfield. The officer stares in horror. If these words are true, then Russell is responsible for not two, but four of the most notorious murders in Illinois history. His crimes have haunted the once peaceful town of Lincoln, caused grief-stricken relatives to die of heartbreak, and frustrated detectives who have continually come up empty-handed. They had their suspicions that Russell was responsible for the cases of Mansfield and Martin, but no one was ever able to find proof of his involvement. More officers are called to the hospital wing to hear his confession. They're desperate to squeeze any last scrap of knowledge from this dying killer. So nurses and officers carefully move Russell from the hospital bed into a police van. They plan to drive him to where he claims the victims have been buried. Where's the body? Officers bark at the weakened Russell. Where did you bury them? Russell smiles greedily drunk on the power of his own knowledge. Only he knows what happened to the individuals who crossed his murderous path. He blankly explains that he has no recollection of where he buried Mansfield's body. It's too long ago to remember, but his memory seems more intact regarding Ruth Martin, and he directs officers to Interstate 55. With no choice but to trust the killer, police drive out of Menard and head to the interstate. But how reliable are Russell's dying words? Did he truly have any association with the disappearances of Martin and Mansfield? Or were his words simply attempts to outwit the police? At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chest. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Russell Schmecker, the horrifying words he spoke as he was dying. 
It's about a killer who would stop at nothing to escape justice. A young man whose future was stolen from him one chilling New Year's Eve. And a married woman's mysterious disappearance. It's about the crimes that haunted the peaceful, wealthy town of Lincoln, Illinois. Two young, soon-to-be parents who were brutally shot in their home. I'm Estefania Hakeman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Russell Schmecker was born in Joliet, Illinois in 1957. He's influenced by the criminal activity of his hometown and grows up surrounded by casinos, gambling, and gangsters. He lives in a society where the rule of law is frequently bent and quickly learns how to get away with crime. The young criminal is often seen tearing down roads away from policemen, beating up unlucky people who have gone on the wrong side of him, suspiciously loitering outside of expensive stores, no doubt planning his next robbery. Russell has a poor relationship with his mother, who he perhaps resents as a figure of authority. The two argue most days, and he's known to storm out of his mother's house and spend weeks sulking in the care of one of his many girlfriends. It's a lifestyle of rebellion and crime. He lives to disrupt society's laws and triumphantly outwit the police. But for the young rebel, crime is only fun so long as he never gets caught, and he'll go to unthinkable measures to ensure he avoids justice. Illinois, 1974. Lincoln College is a small, private university in Illinois. Its beautiful red brick buildings are situated on a picturesque, leafy campus in the sleepy town of Lincoln. The town and college take their name from Illinois' most famous son, Abraham Lincoln. It's a name synonymous with democracy, equality, and American values. With around just 1,000 students in attendance, the college gives the impression of a large family. Students all know each other, staff and faculty members care for their well-being, 
and the school has a good relationship with local residents. It's hard to imagine anything bad happening in this idyllic setting. But that's all about to change. When Russell enrolls at Lincoln College in 1974, the friendly campus will be disrupted forever. It will become notorious for crime, murder, and mystery as the young killer begins his vengeful journey. By 1975, Russell's become known as a thief around campus. He continually steals books, lab equipment, and even the personal possessions of his fellow classmates. Students and staff have learned to avoid the intimidating figure with his long, dark hair, angular face, and thick beard hiding his mouth and chin. Although people at Lincoln College are convinced of his criminal intent, no one's been able to catch him yet. Having grown up just two hours away from Lincoln, Russell knows the town well and is able to outsmart the local police force. But one day in the fall of his sophomore year, he grows bored of petty theft. It's too easy for him, and his adrenaline-crazed brain yearns for a challenge. So during an evening when most students are out partying, Russell sneaks from his building and smoothly lies his way into some of the girls' dorms where he plans to steal any valuable items he can find. He rushes up a few flights of stairs in search of an empty floor where he'll be able to break into a room unnoticed. He knocks on the first door he sees, but hearing voices from inside, quickly moves on to the next. His second knock gets no reply, so he tentatively pushes the door, which, to his surprise, is unlocked. At once, Russell sees what he wants from this room. An expensive guitar gleams in its sleek black case, surrounded by a pile of at least 100 music records. An experienced thief by now, he knows that these items will sell for a considerable amount of money. Russell seizes the guitar out of its case and slings it around his shoulders. He fills up his backpack with as many records as he can and flees the dormitory quickly, never turning to look back. Although a handful of students see Russell's tall figure rushing through the campus buildings with a guitar under one arm, they don't stop him. Perhaps they're too intimidated by his reputation to dare challenge him directly. Once he's arrived safely in his own room, Russell finally breathes. His heart's pounding and his hands are shaking with excitement at the crime he's just committed. But before he can relax, he needs to hide the evidence. A few doors down from Russell, Michael Mansfield is preparing for bed. 19-year-old Mansfield is a good student who's recently made it onto the Lincoln College honor roll. He enjoys his studies and seemingly has a bright future ahead. Like Russell, Mansfield has skipped the party tonight, perhaps to get a good night's sleep or catch up on some classwork. But a knock on his door interrupts any evening plans he had. It's Russell, carrying his backpack full of stolen records. Mansfield knows Russell relatively well. They've both been at Lincoln College for a year now and have a few classes together. Although they're by no means friends, they say hi in passing and don't mind each other's company. Mansfield invites Russell in, and the young criminal excitedly spills what he's just done. He boasts about the expensive guitar and records that he's sure will sell for good money. Before Mansfield has time to perhaps wonder what his involvement is with any of this, Russell thrusts the backpack into his arms. He asks him to hold on to the records for a few days, just until he finds some wealthy buyers. 
Maybe Mansfield's familiar with Russell's intimidating reputation, or perhaps he simply wants to get rid of him without causing any more trouble. Whatever the reason, Mansfield agrees and the records are left in his possession. But nerves get the better of Mansfield. He doesn't want to be involved with any sort of crime on campus. So one evening, he packs up the pile of records and heads outside. He plans to throw the stolen goods down the trash chute and rid himself of any involvement in Russell's crime. But what he doesn't know is that staff at Lincoln College are aware of the stolen records and guitar. They've been given a tip-off from students who saw Russell rush from the girls' dorms and into Mansfield's room that night. So when staff members see Mansfield suspiciously leave his building with a bulging backpack, they follow him to the trash chute and confront him. The student immediately pleads his innocence. He nervously blames Russell and swears that he himself had no part in the theft. Although his story is believed, school protocol insists that he must attend a trial at Logan County Court for being in possession of stolen goods. Based on Mansfield's account, Russell is also indicted. It's a huge blow for a talented boy like Mansfield, one who had never previously been in trouble at school. But there is one way to avoid prosecution, staff assure him. All he needs to do is write a statement against Russell that will be read out at the upcoming trial in court. This is a difficult decision. Mansfield's heard rumors of Russell's violent and dangerous temper and doesn't want to face his wrath by committing a further betrayal. But he also can't see the justice in getting prosecuted for a crime he didn't commit. Eventually, Mansfield agrees. He will testify against Russell. The trial is set for January 6, 1976. But it's a trial that will never take place. As soon as Russell discovers that Mansfield's testifying against him, he'll devise an unforgivable plan to make sure the innocent student can never speak up. New Year's Eve, 1975. Rolling Meadows, Chicago. Mansfield has returned to his parents' home for the holidays. They've enjoyed a festive Christmas together and are getting ready for their New Year's Eve party. The mood's celebratory and excited. Decorations are being hung, extravagant dishes are cooking, and Christmas songs play on the radio. It's a perfect afternoon. At 2 p.m., Mansfield excuses himself to take a phone call. He doesn't tell his parents who it is, but quickly leaves to talk in private. When he returns after a few minutes, he informs his parents that he's heading out to meet a friend at Arlington Heights. Arlington is just a short distance from the Rolling Meadows home, a town renowned for its safety and wealth. So Mansfield's parents don't worry when he says he's meeting a school friend there. Kissing them goodbye, he promises he'll be back in time for the party and heads out of the door to begin his walk. An hour passes and there's no sign of Mansfield's return. But his parents don't worry yet. He mentioned he might be a couple of hours. But two hours pass, and then three. The sky's getting darker by the minute and the temperature's plummeting. Still, Mansfield hasn't arrived home. The joyful night of festivities they'd planned is quickly turning into one of worry and desperation. The sky is now completely black, and snow is threatening to fall. Having seen their son leave by foot as his car stayed in the garage, their hopes of his safe return are fading. New Year's Eve 1975 will be a night that haunts this family forever. 
Mansfield will never return home. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. January 1976. The disappearance of Mansfield has ensured Russell's trial is canceled. But Lincoln College wants nothing more to do with the criminal and expel him from the school. The small community has been shaken by Mansfield's disappearance, and Russell is an unwelcome reminder of the trouble he fell into during his last few weeks alive. But if they think his expulsion will make Lincoln a safer place, they're mistaken. You see, although Russell leaves the college, he has no intentions of leaving the town. He's paid associates, fellow criminals from his early law-breaking days in Joliet, to kill a faculty member who encouraged Mansfield to testify against him. He wants to stay in town to see it gets done. Although Mansfield has a hunger for crime, he perhaps doesn't yet consider himself capable of committing multiple murders. For now, he prefers to instruct others to do his dirty work. But before Russell can achieve this murder of revenge, he'll get into trouble that once again threatens to send him to trial. In desperation to avoid a court case, Russell will abandon his plans to kill the faculty member and focus on two new victims whose silence will be the only way he can stay out of court. In the spring of 1976, 51-year-old Ruth Martin walks across the parking lot to her local Kroger supermarket. She's on a lunch break from her work as a real estate agent and is visiting there to pick up a few groceries. But as she turns round to step on the sidewalk, she sees a young man tear out of the Kroger store and race across the parking lot. He's being chased by a few angry-looking shop employees, but they have no chance of catching him. He's quick, determined, and evidently knows exactly where he's going. Ruth Martin watches in shock as he passes her. His long hair flies in the wind and his mouth is covered by a thick beard, features she'll never forget. As he reaches her car, he hurriedly drops the packet he's been carrying and continues on his escape. The shoplifter is Russell Schmecker, and the item he stole was a packet of steak costing $4. 
Following Russell's eventual capture by police, two people are asked to give evidence against him, Ruth Martin and Jay Fry. Fry is a 25-year-old produce manager who works at the Kroger store. He was starting his lunchtime shift when Russell committed the robbery. Both Martin and Fry got a good view of the thief as he ran past and are confident they'll be able to identify him in court. A trial date is arranged for June of that year and Martin and Fry prepare their statements. But as seen in his previous court case, witnesses scheduled to testify against Russell tend to disappear. June 2nd, 1976. At their real estate group in Lincoln, Ruth Martin's colleagues are getting worried. It's almost midday and she still hasn't shown up for work or called in sick. They know Martin as a reliable, dedicated member of the team, one who would never be this late to work without a valid reason. In confusion, they phone her husband who admits he didn't see her that morning or the previous evening. He simply presumed she'd arrived home late and left early for work. To put his mind at ease and check she's safe, he leaves his office and drives home. But Martin isn't there. As he parks his car in their garage, he's met with a horrific sight. There's no sign of his wife's car, but in its place, a 22 caliber bullet and smears of blood. Police are immediately called to the scene and an investigation is opened. They bombard her husband with questions. Had Martin recently expressed concern over her safety? Was there anyone who had reason to attack her? But their questions are fruitless. Martin was a happily married middle-aged woman who enjoyed her work, was popular with friends, and never expressed any feelings of danger or insecurity. Aside from the bullet and blood, there are no traces of the killer or victim. So after 24 hours, Martin is declared a missing person. Weeks pass and her search continues. The people of Lincoln can't ignore the fact that two disappearances have occurred within just six months of each other. They grow terrified of the mysterious killer who somehow abducted two well-liked normal individuals. But what detectives somehow haven't noticed is that the disappearances are linked. Both missing individuals were scheduled to give testimony against Russell Schmecker in upcoming trials. After a month of searching, police finally find a trace of Ruth Martin. Her car has been abandoned at a Holiday Inn parking lot in Bloomington, just a short drive away from Lincoln. Hotel staff assure police that Martin did not check in the night she went missing and hasn't done so any night since. So when police discover her blood smattered over the car's trunk, they conclude she must have been murdered. Perhaps if the police had noticed that Russell was the common denominator in the cases of Mansfield and Martin, they'd have been able to protect the third person who was preparing to give evidence against him, Jay Fry. It's the evening of the 9th of October, 1976, and Jay and Robin Fry are returning home from a late night out. The Frys are both 25 years old and are expecting their first child in five months. They're a well-liked and respected couple throughout Lincoln who live a happy life as part of a trailer park community. Jay is a known face to most due to his position at the local Kroger store. The Fries enter the well-lit trailer park and wave to Jay's sister who lives next door. Although the park's a safe and trusting community, she often waits up to see their return. 
the Fry's climb into their trailer and prepare for bed. But a few hours into their sleep, a knock on the door alerts the young couple. Supposing it's a neighbor who's perhaps forgotten their keys, Jay wearily creeps towards the door and opens it. Russell Schmecker is standing outside holding a gun. He points it first at Jay and then at Robin, who screams in terror. They rush to each other and retreat further back into the trailer, trying to escape from this man holding a gun. Russell commands them to get on their knees and they obey, terrified of the armed madman. The couple stare at each other in disbelief. Nothing like this ever happens in Lincoln. Jay recognizes Russell as the man he's preparing to give testimony against, and perhaps wonders if the recognition is mutual. He doesn't have to wait long for an answer. Russell coldly whispers that he knows exactly who Jay is. He remembers running past him as he stole from the Kroger store a few months ago. He also knows that Jay is preparing to give testimony at the upcoming trial. And in a friendly town like Lincoln, it wasn't hard to find his address. Jay leans closer towards his wife, one arm draped protectively around her and the other firmly fixed against her pregnant stomach. The two cower on their knees, not daring to look up at Russell. In desperation, Jay swears he'll withdraw his testimony as long as Russell leaves them alone. But Russell can't risk it. He doesn't trust that the fries will keep their mouths shut. And now they've seen him with a gun, they're bound to go to the police. He moves the gun between Robin and Jay, pointing it in turn at each of their heads. Then he pauses as it lands on Robin. He pulls the trigger and shoots. Robin lets out a piercing scream and immediately collapses to the floor. She rolls forward as blood leaves her dying body and collapses in a motionless heap at the feet of Russell. Jay roars in anger. He throws himself onto his wife's body, trying anything to revive her. But it's too late. Russell's bullet passed straight into her brain. Petrified by his wife's death, Jay doesn't even notice the door to his trailer closing. Russell lingers outside for a while, directly underneath a streetlight. He's perhaps contemplating what to do with Jay Fry. Can he risk a double murder? He knows there's no way Jay will keep quiet now that he's killed his wife and unborn baby. So Russell turns on his heel and marches back into their trailer. Jay Fry is a sitting target. He's paralyzed by the murder of his wife and barely reacts to Russell's reappearance. The trigger is pulled and Jay Fry is shot. As Russell stands over the two dead bodies, the Fry's telephone rings. He freezes. Had someone seen him enter? The phone rings continuously, and before the caller has a chance to hang up, Russell flees the trailer and runs out of the trailer park. He carelessly leaves the bodies of Jay and Robin Fry for anyone to find. But Russell's suspicions are correct. Someone had seen him. Jay Fry's sister lives in the neighboring trailer and was awoken by a deafening cry when Russell shot the first bullet. She rushed to her window to investigate and caught Russell casually lingering outside of their trailer. The streetlight gave the woman a perfect view of his features, his long dark hair, round glasses, grisly beard and angular face. 
She observed him for about 30 seconds before seeing him head back into her brother's home. The woman sensed that something about this wasn't right. She didn't recognize Russell from the trailer park community and doubted her brother would have a friend around at this time of the night. In a hurry, she dialed her brother's number on her telephone and waited for his response. As she prayed for Jay to pick up her call, a second gunshot signified his murder. But perhaps due to the loud ringing of the phone that was pressed against her ears, the woman didn't hear the shot and patiently waited for Jay to answer. But of course, he never did. While the woman was waiting by her phone, her brother and sister-in-law were lying dead at Russell's feet. Russell's already running away to his nearby car when the woman decides to leave her trailer and investigate. She hurries along the short distance to the Fry's home, opens their unlocked door, and finds the dead bodies of Jay and Robin Fry. Like Mansfield and Martin, Jay Fry was murdered for agreeing to give testimony against Russell. And Robin Fry? She was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. Russell has committed unforgivable murder to avoid the prosecution for the theft of $4 worth of groceries. By 3.30 a.m., Russell is well into his journey away from the murder scene. He's speeding down Interstate 55 at 96 miles per hour, desperate to reach his hometown of Joliet as fast as possible. But Russell's so preoccupied with his escape that he fails to notice a police car pulling out behind him, lights and sirens blazing. The policeman doesn't recognize Russell and is totally unaware of the murders he's escaping from. But fortunately, his speeding is extreme enough to get him arrested and he's taken to the Macon County Court where he'll be held for reckless driving. 80 miles away, police have been called to the Lincoln Trailer Park to examine the Fry's bodies and search for any traces of the killer. Although Russell fled the scene and took the murder weapon with him, Jay Fry's sister is able to provide valuable evidence. She can describe exactly what the killer looked like, from his hair color down to the clothes he was wearing. Police take her testimony and draw up a list of suspects, known criminals from the area who match the physical descriptions given. Among them is Russell Schmecker. When they present her with a variety of pictures, Fry's sister singles Russell out. Although her memory from that night is muddied with fear and trauma, she's confident that Russell was the man she observed. Her evidence is good enough for the police. They view his physical descriptions and history of crime as enough to make him their number one suspect. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. 
Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. As soon as they hear he's being held in Macon County Jail for reckless driving, police rush over to question the killer. Russell's found in a dark room in the jail where he's being held for questioning. True to the arrogant criminal he's always been, he isn't intimidated by the swarming policemen and resolves to remain silent until he has a lawyer present. But even a criminal lawyer can't do much to help his case. Russell matches the description of the murderer, was caught clearly speeding away from the crime scene, and has a long history of criminal involvement in Lincoln. After a few more questions, they discover he also had a motive to kill Jay Fry. The need to prevent incriminating testimony from being given against him in court. It's this final realization that proves to be the most groundbreaking. It will be the first time police officially link the Fry's murders to the disappearances of Michael Mansfield and Ruth Martin. After one year and four murders, Russell has finally been caught. February 27th, 1977. 21-year-old Russell Schmecker is on trial at the Logan County Court, where he's being charged with the double murder of Jay and Robin Fry. Despite the mounting evidence proving his guilt, Russell is pleading innocent. The prosecutor begins the case against him by explaining that Russell had a clear motive to murder Jay Fry. He wanted to prevent his testimony from being heard. And seeing as Robin Fry was in the trailer with her husband, she too had to die. This is a man who has no regard for human life. He willingly murdered a young couple and their unborn child to avoid prosecution for a minor crime. But the prosecutor reminds the jury that this is not the first case in Lincoln where people have become victims of a tragedy before giving testimony against Russell. The court remembers the disappearances of Mansfield and Martin, which both took place less than 14 months before. Next, the court moves on to the evidence. Although Russell's DNA wasn't found at any of the murders, Fry's sister positively identified him in a lineup and is certain he's the man she saw fleeing the scene. A further piece of evidence to Russell's guilt is his speeding felony. The prosecutor can see no coincidence in the fact that hours after the Fry's murders, Russell was found speeding on the road out of Lincoln to his hometown, Joliet. Although he denies the charge of murder and swears he had nothing to do with the crime, Russell's own argument is flimsy and inconsistent. He's found guilty of two accounts of murder for Jay and Robin Fry and is sentenced to 100 to 300 years in prison for each. Although many suspect him of murdering Michael Mansfield and Ruth Martin, there's simply not enough evidence to convict him. Not a soul in Logan County Court has any sympathy for Russell. The judge condemns him to life in prison and states, Society really doesn't have a place for Russell Schmecker. If it were up to me, an eye for an eye would be the proper sentencing. But unfortunately for the judge, Illinois hasn't yet reinstated the death penalty. Having been revoked in 1972, efforts are underway to reintroduce it and condemn criminals to death by lethal injection. But it won't return until June 1977. Russell escapes the death penalty by just four months. Russell leaves Logan County Court 
and is escorted to Menard Correctional Center, where he'll spend the rest of his life. When Russell Schmecker finally admits on his deathbed to the murders of Michael Mansfield and Ruth Martin, police immediately reopen the cold cases. They prepare to drive to Interstate 55, where Russell has assured them they'll discover the body of Ruth Martin. He adds that he has no memory of where Michael Mansfield's body is. But the interstate stretches over 30 miles. With limited resources, manpower, and time, the police will be hard-pressed to find the body in such a vast location. So needing someone who knows the precise area better than anyone else, they decide to take Russell with them. During the journey, he provides some clarity to the cold cases. He acknowledges that police correctly worked out his motive. He killed his victims to prevent them from testifying against him. Mansfield had to be stopped from speaking out about the stolen records. Martin and Fry needed to be silenced about his Kroger store burglary. Strangely though, Russell seems largely clueless about Mansfield's murder. He has no idea what was said during the phone call on New Year's Eve. He doesn't know where or how he was killed and can't even remember where his body's been buried. He claims that he simply gave the order to kill Mansfield. It was his associates who carried out the crime. Russell has a better idea about the murder of Martin. He admits to kidnapping her in her own car a few weeks before his trial and shooting her in the Holiday Inn parking lot in Bloomington. Her body, he informs police, is buried under construction works on the Lincoln side of Interstate 55. But as they reach this area, Russell shows no sign of recognition. They pass construction sites, fields, abandoned houses, parking lots. But Russell continues to shake his head. None of these are where he buried Ruth Martin. In frustration, they eventually stop the van on the side of the road. They order Russell to point them to the body. In response, he simply shrugs. He can't do it. The landscape's changed too much since his crime and he no longer recognized the place where he buried her. Russell's return to Menard Correctional Center, where he dies peacefully a few days later. But police are left wondering whether his deathbed confession was true. If he was responsible for Mansfield and Martin's deaths, why was he so unsure of the details relating to their murders? Could it be that Russell was simply trying to frustrate the police one last time for his own amusement? Or had time, age, and illness really blurred his memory of the crimes? Although it's widely believed throughout Lincoln that Russell had the motive, mindset, and even the final words to prove his own guilt, the cases of Mansfield and Martin can't be closed. Russell's confession wasn't given under oath, and his confused testimony lacks reliability. Without the names of his supposed associates or precise locations of the bodies, detectives cannot close the two cases. The disappearances of Mansfield and Martin remain officially open to this day. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we meet Larry Sherrard, a retired plumber and family man from Kentucky who revealed two dark secrets on his deathbed. Secrets that linked him to the mysterious disappearance of a drug dealer in 1988 and an anonymous dead body hidden under his house just one year later. 
Sherard's haunting confession questions whether this elderly religious man was in fact the two-time murderer. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Nicole Edmonds. Supervising editor, Kevin Pham. Sound design by Matias Torresole. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds-Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. 